Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? Maintaining. I am also maintaining that I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Yeah, it's been a it's been a fun couple days in all of our various households. Uh, all right, first up in controversies and controversies, have you noticed how lots of special effects extravaganzas are kind of blah? Not really that extravagant, just kind of like eh, it's all right. I'm not talking about Avatar: The Way of Water, of course, which was a painstaking decade plus long journey from James Cameron's brain to your IMAX screen. I'm just talking about your average monthly, say, uh, tr- or tri monthly or bi monthly, however often these things come out, MCU extravaganza, extravaganza, right? So, like, surely, surely, uh, the people who listen to the show and were watching that movie kind of wondered why Black Panther Wakanda Forever looked like muddy garbage on the screen. Um, and I, I bet some of you asked why certain sequences, especially towards the end of Black Adam, looked like they were quickly assembled trash, despite the fact that they pushed the movie back for FX reasons uh, and didn't bring it back up on the schedule to take advantage of a huge dead period in the release calendar. Um, I imagine you scoffed when people said that MCU shows like Falcon and the Winter Soldier or She-Hulk uh, looked as though they had cinema quality special effects because they certainly did not. Uh, maybe Ant-Man goes to the quantum universe forever and has a lot of fun or whatever that title of that movie is. Maybe that'll fix what's what's happening here, but I don't really have my hopes up. After seeing the trailer, it uh, turns out that all of these FX-driven spectacles are made by... Oh, hold on. I got to check my notes. Actual people. They're made by actual people, and those people are being worked incredibly hard uh, and for relatively low pay by the folks in charge of making these movies, right? So according to a story in Vulture, the FX houses are overworked, they're understaffed. Uh, One employee told Vulture that the the folks at Marvel were asking him to work on a project that would require 18-hour days, seven days a week for three months straight, which sounds like not a lot of fun. Uh, After walking away from the offer, the folks at Marvel didn't really take the hint. They were like, hey, you want to work on our next project? He was like, no, no thank you. Uh, Despite there being nearly 600 FX houses, uh, employing somewhere between 31 and 117,000 employees, that's an enormous range. I don't know really where that number comes from, but it has to do with the fact that there are are contract players and regular players and all that sort of stuff. Um, And despite demand being higher than ever, uh, the studios are, you know, trying to keep prices down. They're just trying to keep prices down. Marvel comes in for a particular thrashing in this piece. Uh, those quoted said that the Mouse House, uh, the, the Disney, which owns Marvel, the Mouse House, uh, offers them less money and hires fewer people than would be expected uh, to be needed to get everything done in time. The world of VFX, interestingly, is one of the very few areas of Hollywood not to be unionized. Actors, writers, and directors all have unions where everybody's gearing up for a writer's union strike. You know, that's, that's those are the unions that really get the headlines here. Um, but arguably the most important union in the business, at least in terms of quality of life for its membership, is IATSE, uh, which is the group that covers pay and treatment for the so-called below-the-line talent, right? The grips, the lighting guys, wardrobe folks, hair and makeup people, etc., etc. There are more than 150,000 people in this union. 
Uh, and the VFX wing of IATSE is trying to bring those workers under the union umbrella. Needless to say, studios not thrilled by this. It's a difficult area to unionize just in general, given how many FX houses are independently run and staffed by contractors versus full-time employees, etc. cetera. Uh, and audiences who have grown accustomed to enormous CGI spectacles coming out regularly. Again, basically, you know, for, for a while, we were getting one every two weeks or so. Uh, they are going to maybe start to wonder why the flow of products slows if more people have to be hired per production and are only required to work, you know, 10-hour days instead of 17-hour days, uh, thus reducing the number of productions that get made overall. Honestly, though, fewer CGI spectacles that actually look better would probably be a boon for consumers and the industry writ large, right, Peter? So I have a, a, a somewhat complicated reaction to a story like this. And, and so it, like, let me sort of walk you through how I think about this. On the one hand, I just I don't think there's anything obviously and inherently wrong with a, a corporation, even a big corporation that has a, a lot of money in kind of objective terms, negotiating with contractors. That's just how business works. Um, the thing that Marvel uh, uh, was uh, alleged to have been doing here that is obviously wrong is that they were trying to get contractors to stop sharing salary information. And that's not legal. You can't do that. People can talk to each other and give each other salary information if they want to do so, though they also can't really be compelled. To, they shouldn't, I think, I, I should say, they shouldn't be compelled to do so if they don't want to. Um, so I'm not, you know, I like I'm a libertarian. I'm not like a, a big union guy. At the same time, I'm not inherently opposed like to the to the general idea of private sector unions. Right. Like 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 just sort of in theory, they're not necessarily something that I, I think is, you know, inherently bad. Um, but it does seem to me like the idea of unionizing here is a response to a specific circumstance, which is that at the moment, Marvel is. The chief by Marvel and really Disney, because Disney also owns Star Wars and sort of a bunch of these uh, big effects driven IP uh, franchises. They, there is, there is a, a single buyer that has, uh, outsized power in the market right now. And they are using that power to drive down wages in some circumstances. And they're really driving down wages in some circumstances. There was one example of somebody who was basically being asked to work for something like 18 or $19 an hour, which is what they're paying, uh, retail workers, like at the local, you know, like chips and beer shop, uh, uh, you know, a couple of blocks from me. It's just not a lot of money for very high tech work, right? Um, and so Mar Marvel and, you know, to a sort of more general extent dominates here. And that is the circumstance that this is that unionization is being talked about responding to. And unionization might be an effective response right now to Marvel and to Disney's dominance. But I guess I do have some concerns about the long-term effects of unionization here. So one of the things we did learn from this story as well is that there's just obviously not enough trained, talented tech work, uh, um, effects workers in Hollywood right now. And there's, uh, I, someone said that there were possibly as many as one-third of the number that you actually need to get all the work done. And that's one of the reasons that they're all so slammed and all so uh, right and that the products are coming out kind of not looking so great. And I guess I I would be concerned about the possibility that over the medium to long term, the union wouldn't end up being a force for delivering high quality material uh, and making sure that enough people can get entry into the workforce. Because what happens with unions over time is that they 
tend to negotiate towards sort of towards towards a, a kind of workplace sclerosis in which what is like what's prioritized is the needs of current union members rather than the quality of the work or uh, or, or the, the entry of new workers into the workplace. And so I guess I would be somewhat concerned here. Again, I'm not inherently opposed to the idea of private sector unions, but I would be somewhat concerned that 10 or 20 years from now, when Marvel is maybe not the dominant player anymore, when the when the marketplace has shifted, that you end up with a situation in which a tech union is not a force for making better high quality pictures, but instead a force for making sure that its members get paid and that its members don't have to work more than a certain number of hours and a certain type of schedule. And that's not necessarily going to be good for consumers 10 or 20 years from now. Though, I, again, I can understand being mad at Marvel for negotiating. I mean, these, these people are like quite highly trained, high, quite, highly, quite talented artisans. I can understand being upset when they're like, we're going to pay you 1300 bucks a week and also demand that you work every weekend for the next six months. Yeah, I mean, I my one my one I I agree with you that there is always a a problem of union capture of the uh, essentially getting getting jobs in the first place uh process, right? Like this is this is one of the knocks on SAG is that it's very hard to get into SAG. Um, or it can be very hard to get into SAG. And then, and there was another weird note in here, which is that one of the people who was kind of on the pro-union side, one of the, the FX workers who was interviewed in this story, suggested, I think probably correctly, that there are ways to do all of these things that are cheaper. And so I've heard this, that like the directors who are at work outside of the Marvel system and have like visions that they stick to up front rather than what Marvel does, which is like the movie is still being edited and reworked, you know, six weeks before the release, like the Ending is being totally changed, and that's one of the reasons why the effects always come out so shoddy is because they don't have time. I've heard that, but guess what? If you are making if you are making movies that where the effects work is better but also cheaper, then that's less money overall for effects workers. And I'm not sure that that's where like sort of what what unionization really wants is is a system where oh we just you know we just want to produce uh, movies that look better but are like actually cheaper and where they spend less money on effects they want more money to be spent on effects in the long term yeah but uh, all right so Alyssa, shouldn't to peter's point that there there aren't enough frankly there aren't enough workers in the industry making these movies be, who who are qualified to work on these films and and make them for Marvel and DC and whoever else uh shouldn't that lead to i mean i i that's like the best that's the best argument for unionization frankly is is the there is a scarcity of talent uh they need to band together to increase their wages uh and and somebody needs to say to Marvel look we're not doing this 18 hour a day nonsense for 3 months Right? Yeah, like that is that is like the case for unions. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think that, um, you know, Peter brought up the sort of creative practice question here, because one of the complaints that FX workers have had for a long time with um, with Marvel in particular is that that is a franchise that has earned a lot of indie has earned a certain amount of credit by bringing in indie directors who have no experience directing FX heavy spectacles, have in some cases no experience directing action, period, um, and are assigning them these incredibly expensive, um, you know, CGI-driven movies, and they simply don't have the experience or the skill set 
to sort of visualize the effects work as they're directing. And so, you know, I think that the what that person was saying makes this stuff more expensive is that the work is duplicative and done under high pressure. So it's not that, you know, it's not that the basic work of effects work, it can be necessarily done more cheaply. It's that um, there's enormous waste in Marvel's production process. Um, sure, but if you're an if, you're, if your movie is is a hundred and eighty million dollar film rather than a two hundred and twenty million dollar film, and the reason is because you didn't do a lot of reshoots and reworkings at the last minute, that's still forty million dollars less that you've spent. Most of it is forty million dollars that is not now going to any effects house. Okay, um, I was gonna finish, but um, sorry, that's I just, fine. I, I'm just like trying to make my explain myself. Yeah. But one of the things, I mean, there's a lot of, I think it's very easy to talk about unions in terms of negotiating for money, but that's one of very, that's one of many things that unions negotiate over. Um, And so, you know, a union that is negotiating with Marvel can negotiate under, you know, working conditions and, you know, what, like what people can be asked to do. They can exert more collective power over the process of the work in ways that, you know, could keep people employed in ways and at levels that are more sustainable for the individual workers and for the companies as a whole, um, but that end up having a biz- you know, a benefit to Marvel in that it produces a less wasteful process, right? I mean, there's this tendency to treat unions only as, you know, it's like the 40 million, as if the $40 million is like the only thing um, that unions are supposed to sort of extract. But if you set up a system, like unions can negotiate things that are good for businesses too. Um, and I think the the sort of libertarian side of things that doesn't treat um, unions as if they have any insight to offer into a company's sort of processes and practices um, is a mistake and, you know, sort of devalues some of that expertise that unions can express in a collective and institutional way. I mean, you know, Marvel has also decided not to create an in-house VFX shop. Um, You know, a union, like if they did that and had to deal with a union, um, you know, that union could probably offer some, like some insights into what Marvel did as a contractor that it probably wouldn't want to do as a full-time employer. Um, and so unions' ability to negotiate working conditions could create could create like a better creative process for Marvel that produces better visual results that's less financially onerous um, and that creates more humane, you know, a sort of more humane level of demand for the workers. Like it could be good for everybody. And we should note that I believe Alyssa is the only uh, union member on the show. You, yes, you are a member yes. of the Washington Post Guild, isn't that? I am. We are in contract negotiations right now. Um, and so, you know, all of this is very much on my mind. Um, so and- you you went you went to management and said, no more three months straight of 18-hour days. We're tired of it. Uh, yeah, you know, we've been negotiating <laughs> over, um, we're negotiating over a bunch of different things among, yeah. like, bereavement leave. You know, the, the Post has not... The Post doesn't offer us, like, inflation-indexed cost of living increases. Um, and so, you know, I, I like, my salary has basically shrunk the last couple of years of the Post. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, money is part of it, but the conditions of work, like, where you do it, is there a reason that someone who, you know, writes a newspaper column needs to be at their desks, you know, three days a week? Um, all of these, you know, unions are about money, but they're about the way the job is done and also about channeling the collective insight of the workers um, to management 
to express, you know, the insights that we've gained by doing the job. Yeah. I mean, I will, I will, I would, I would push back against that slightly in the sense that, I, like, whatever Marvel has been doing for the last 10 years creatively, uh, the, the, the constant process of tweaking and reworking and making sure all of the pieces of all the various movies kind of fit together, uh, even up to, you know, a week before release or whatever, um, has been working for them. I, that's a, this, it's the most successful run any franchise has ever had in history. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I would be, I would, if I was Marvel, if I was Marvel in DC, I would be very hesitant to have, to deal with folks who were like, you know what, we want the, the, we want this to be the the finale and that's it. That's all we're working on. You know, does that? Yeah. At the same time, if I were, if I were Bob Iger, um, and I was looking at, you know, the potential onset of not like, you know, I don't think the superhero market is going to crater, but, you know, clearly some of the movie-going audience is not there anymore. Clearly the sort of level of, you know, enthusiasm for, you know, their sequels are not necessarily like building on each other audience-wise and box office-wise. Um, I would be taking a look at those productions and saying, like, are there places we can tighten up the ship? You know, this has broadly worked well for us, but are there efficiencies? Are there is there a place with a lot of waste? Um, you know, is this, you know is this strategy of recruiting directors and then, you know, having everything sort of directed by a second unit and having a lot of hassle on the back end, is that the best thing for us as a business? I mean, it would make a lot more sense for Disney to, you know, tighten up any flaws in their operation before an audience decline sets in for real, if it's going to set in. I mean, you might as well have that insurance. And if you've been doing it for this long, and this well, you know, you should probably see if there are places where um, you can improve the operation. I mean, I just think from a business management perspective, that makes sense. Totally separate yeah. from the unionization issues. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that FX artists want to unionize in the face of escalating studio demands? Uh, Alyssa? Uh, it's controversial. It's obviously what any workers in a similar situation should do. Peter? It's maybe a little bit of a controversy in the way that unionization efforts always kind of seem controversial because there's typically, if that's happening, at least one side that uh, is opposed or not super thrilled about it. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's probably controversial in the sense that it's it's weird that visual effects are the only or one of the very few non-unionized non-uni- uh, branches of the, the Hollywood Empire, but it's obviously going to be controversial if they if if the end result of this is you know uh, a slowdown in work product. Uh, you, I, I, again, I'll be very curious to see how the consumers deal with that. Uh, all right, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for this week's bonus episode on the menu. It's kind of a horror adjacent social thriller type movie that had a solid run in theaters and is uh, now a hit on HBO Max. Lots of people talking about it. We're uh, we're excited to talk about it with each other. And you, uh, speaking of horror-adjacent movies, on to the main event. Megan, the latest low-budget hit from Blumhouse, which uh, debuted to $30 million or so in its opening weekend at the box office, dropped just 40% in the second weekend, which is a, an almost miraculous hold for a horror film. Usually they drop 60%, 70% in that range. So uh, big, big box office numbers for Megan, which stars Allison Williams as Gemma, a toy designer, who is working on a breakthrough in artificial reality, one that would fuse a, a kind of supercomputer with an animatronic titanium alloyed American girl's doll uh, in order to ensure that kids are now 
ever sad or lonely or, you know, need parenting ever again. Uh, but weird things start happening after Gemma gives the doll Megan, who is uh, played by Amy Donald and voiced by Jenna Davis, to her orphaned niece Katie, who's played by Violet McGraw. Uh, strange things. Weird murderous things. Murders. Murders start happening. Uh, Megan is kind of like a kid, your, your kid's first horror movie, right? It's a relatively bloodless PG-13 affair in which nothing terribly surprising happens. Bad and slash or annoying people meet their demise in ways that make us kind of giggle. Uh, and both we and the characters learn the importance of not tampering with primal forces of nature so we don't unleash the horrors of the blah, blah. Uh, anyway uh, think Frankenstein by way of child's play with a dash of uh, the Blumhouse horror flick upgrade tossed into the mix um, I, I gotta be honest I did not love this movie I, I, I don't think it's that good it's competent um, yes but it, it's totally paint by numbers and like kind of completely lacking in shocks or challenges of something uh, stuff that we've seen be hit be a hit more recently like barbarian or even smile um but look this is a huge hit and it's worth thinking about why right i i can pinpoint a couple of uh reasons and the first is the marketing campaign which highlighted some of the goofier aspects of the movie you want a sassy talking doll who does some crazy dance moves right before she uh, starts murdering people, I got a movie for you. And honestly, my biggest complaint about Megan is it didn't lean into the weirdness nearly enough. If you want to be like the weird, campy horror movie, just do that. Do that instead of, you know, kind of half-assing it. Um, And part of it is just the rating, right? This is a PG-13 rating, which obviously opens things up. Um, but it also uh, hurts the movie in certain ways. It's really hard to have a really scary PG-13 movie. Um... Uh, but, you know, horror skews younger as it is. And one reason that horror films like The Black Phone and Smile and The New Scream did well is because younger audiences who aren't scared of COVID uh, but still wanted to be scared by something showed up to the theaters. So I don't know. I'm I'm mixed on this movie, which I, I think is competent, but, like, feels like a missed opportunity. Uh, I, feel like, I feel like there are things that could have happened here that would have made it better. Alyssa, you're not a huge horror fan, but you did like this movie, I, I think, a lot. What What appealed to you about it? I did. So I think um, thinking about this as a murder doll horror movie is wrong. This is actually a satire about con- like about contemporary momming, basically. Um, and it's the kind of thing that aspect of the movie. I mean, obviously, it's there on the surface to a certain extent, right? Like Gemma is not sure that she's meant to be a parent. But the movie is shot through with all of these little jokes that you would basically only get if you are scrolling mom Instagram all the time, right? I mean, there's a scene where uh, Gemma is frustrated at Katie for, like, picking everything off her pizza. And Megan, you know, this doll, like, pipes up with this uh, – to cite this theory she calls the division of responsibility, which is that, you know, you're responsible for serving food to your child and your child is responsible for what they eat. And this is ubiquitous in, like, parenting circles, in, you know, all of the Instagram accounts that are basically like, how do I get my child to eat anything that's not Cheerios? And it is a theory that totally makes sense. Um, Like, you're not supposed to pressure your kid. You're not supposed to sort of do anything that will induce resistance. And it is unbelievably infuriating, right? Because, like, you know, what good is the division of responsibility if you if your child eats nothing, right? Or will eat like three things. And so it's one of those things it's like set up to, you know, it's a theory that is propagated sort of to make parents feel saner about an inherently crazy making situation, but that only serves to make you feel worse because you can't achieve the kind of like enlightened detachment that 
the philosophy is meant to push you towards. Um, you know, you Zen ha- and the art of child uh, cuisine is a, is a real thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, you know, you have a therapist talking about attachment theory. You have that, you know, very funny scene at this sort of prospective students day at this new school where this mom to this like obviously awful boy is sort of blathering on about all of these theories about how, you know, defiant kids end up being the most intelligent. And so the whole thing is like being plunged into the culture of contemporary moms. And notice it's like, you know, men are not really involved in fathering in this movie, right? You have, you know, you have Katie's dad in sort of the opening scene kind of advocating for the laissez-faire, like, oh, you know, like, let her watch screens. That way we don't have to deal with her or whining. Um, but this is this is a movie that is very much set in a female world, um, where, you know, to a certain, which, you know, reflects the gender split of the contemporary parenting internet. Um, it's very much about the expectations that moms sort of put on themselves. You even in this, you know, the climactic fight between Megan and Gemma basically have Megan saying like, you know, sort of turning the language of, you know, feminist empowerment on Gemma to basically say like, because you're, a, you know, a modern career woman and none of this comes naturally to you, like, you can't be a mother. You shouldn't be a mother. She's like, you know, go ahead, like, lean into your toy-making genius into your career and let me, like, let me, the supposedly superior parent, take care of your child. Um, and Gemma is sort of an interesting character because she is kind of a cold fish. She is sort of, sort of bad at this. But it is the climax in the movie is very much about her embracing her own imperfection and saying, like, I am a better parent, you know, in my, like, failures because I can learn, because I recognize that for every rule that there is an exception, because, you know, I can read this kid, and also because I recognize that discomfort is a part of learning to grow as a human being. Um, and it, so it's an assertion of the value of individual parenting, even by a flawed parent, over the sort of homogenized advice of the internet, over the, you know, sort of supposed hyper-optimization of a robot. It is it is just a very funny movie about being a mom today. And, you know, I think watching it coming from that experience, you know, I'm someone who like, where's my parenting Instagram nonsense lightly. Um, I don't take it too seriously. But Viewing it as like a mom satire rather than as a scary doll satire, I think made it land very differently. Yeah, it. it I, I could see that. I could see that working much better. And that those those parts of the movie are probably the best written stuff in the film for sure. Like the the whole kind of mommy wars aspect of it. Uh, Peter, the the part that landed least for me was all of the business ethics stuff. Which just was like so kind of lazily and shoddily done. I thought uh, that to the extent that like I was really hoping for a last minute reveal that like uh, Gemma was gonna team up with Megan and like take over the world. Like Megan would make a, like offer a deal like we should work together and we could blame the murders on the kid and we'll we'll all get away with it. And like I thought that would have been that would have been much funnier and darker and, and instead it was just kind of like we all learned a lesson about the importance of meddling with nature. We shouldn't do it. I don't know, I didn't like it. I'm sorry, Sonny. I'll I'll see what I can do I next time. I didn't care for it. Can you send this can you send these notes to Jason Blum for I, me? I would appreciate it. So I I guess I feel like in that respect, what that movie was doing was it was borrowing from the the classics and modern classics of horror, 
all of which posit that in some ways the the villain who keeps the the franchise going is the hero, but that the villain is also the villain, right? And that's Jason, that's Freddy, that's, you know, the Halloween movies, that's Scream even, right? It's frankly, it's Godzilla, right? Like, all of those movies are sort of movies about this monster is actually a murdering monster. We're not going to pretend that it's the hero, except occasionally, every now and then, it is the hero. Godzilla gets to be the hero. But, like, no, it's not the hero. It destroys and murders and kills, and that's what it does. At the same time, the movie's named after the the bad guy, because that's how horror movies work, and you have to both enjoy the bad guy being bad, and then the bad guy, the villain, creature, murderer, whatever, that draw, that keeps the franchise together also has to be the villain who gets destroyed in the end. And that, to me, is just in keeping with the movie's whole ethos, which is that this movie really smartly draws from a lot of, uh, like mainstream often action movies as much as horror films uh and is and just like borrows and steals in a way that i think is very effective and very smart and like uh, uh so akela cooper is the screenwriter here and she is very much an up-and-comer in hollywood she's got a bunch of movies coming out um and like seems to be sort of poised for for bigger success and like the whole third act of this is just terminator and terminator 2 it's almost it's not quite beat for beat like that that's a little bit of an yeah. ex- exaggeration yeah but it's really close to beat for beat but not in a way that made me feel like oh this is just this is just a ripoff i don't care anymore it was like oh you you've seen terminator you appreciated how that movie worked with the fake death and then it comes back without the legs and it's still like oh it's even more murdery than ever and you've got it right like all this stuff like just stealing from the best in a way that i thought was quite effective and quite clever and then the movie is is pretty witty and it does a pretty good job of developing its concept in i don't know 97 95 minutes whatever it is you know throughout right like in the way that blumhouse just like i don't i can't remember a uh, a horror movie from the last decade or so that blumhouse has released where they just botched the premise like they got they had like a good idea and then it was just completely you know, stupid, like the, the development of it was completely stupid. Even that's not to say I liked all of them. That's not to say I think they're all like works of genius, but they basically are like, here, let's take this idea and actually run it through its paces and do do some basic work with it. Even if like, I also think this movie had a bunch of ideas that could have been explored much more in depth and at, at greater length. It could have been weirder. It could have leaned even more into the mom stuff. It could have been even more about like leaving your kids, you know, with, with a combination of Siri and an iPad and like what, what, wait, is that actually a horrific scenario in the fact that, that millions of children are being raised by this like weird amalgam of, you know, of Amazon and Apple creation right like that sort of thing and it doesn't it doesn't go that far it's just like here's a here's a funny doll it does a dance it's knows its kids right like it's like there's a great little tiny gag in the beginning about how um where gemma tells her boss that in the original furby uh thing fur baby uh thing that like they're they're sort of cheap version of this toy whatever it's called they they just like but been uh like tracking all of the conversations with kids without telling them and the boss is like you didn't tell me that but like ah right like it's just it's the constant surveillance society it's got all of that stuff in it great little sort of it's it's witty enough it's clever enough it doesn't overstay its welcome and like it starts with i think you know one of the best uh ironic 
you know, um, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of absurdist, ironic commercials, like since RoboCop or Starship Troopers, right? Like it just, it borrows, again, borrowing from the best. Uh, it does a bunch of stuff that you've kind of seen before, but in a new way with modern ticks, and it mostly works. But I also, so the other thing, I will just answer the other question you asked real quick, which is, why did, why is this movie a theatrical hit? Part of it is the marketing, but part of it is this movie is a good theatrical experience because all of those ironically funny bits, the kind of ridiculous things, they're much more amusing when you see them with other people. And this is a movie that doesn't, that isn't a big screen experience because of the big screen and the big sound. It is a big screen experience because you need other people in the room to to fully appreciate and enjoy this movie. I saw this at a, a 4 p.m. screening on a Sunday at, a, at the Alamo Draft House near my house, and it was absolutely packed. And I definitely enjoyed this because it was a packed house with a bunch of other people who were there to indulge in the ridiculousness of this completely silly premise. And the Can Blumhouse, I also say, I think... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say... Um... I also just really like Allison Williams in this. Um, I think, you know, she is someone who, you know, since her real sort of breakout performance in Girls has been kind of tarred as a Nepo baby um, in a derisive way. But, like, I actually think she is very good at playing these sort of cool characters um, like she does in Get Out. Um, You know, people who are sort of controlled and calm on the surface and there's something just waiting to be you know let out she is just she is a facade that is just waiting to crack all of the time and i think it makes her her talent for this kind of like funny social horror it's just a it's an excellent match yeah well this is this is one reason again why i i kept hoping for there to be something more at the end for there to be for her to like really kind of embrace that cult like you know that moment in get out where she's fumbling for the keys and she's like i can't find and then she just looks up and she has like sociopath eyes and and later she's eating the fruit loops and she's like scrolling through like athlete instagram accounts or whatever and i'm just like that see that that is like a good use of her talent and you see something similar in the um i think it was a netflix original the perfection where she she has that same kind of like real uh there's like a real darkness to to what she's doing there um, and again, I I think she's very good in this. I like Allison Williams a lot. I I, I kind of wish she would be in more stuff, but uh, but I I just was I was hoping for something a little more heightened than than what we got. And that's like how I felt. Again, that's how I felt about this whole movie. Just like everything in it was like a six when it should have been a nine or a ten on the the up thereness scale. It's contemporary Corman. That's a thing. That's and, a real con- thing. And Corman was never like was never great, but Corman also delivered at a low budget on his concepts, and he knew that he and like he rarely over delivered, but he delivered, and he taught other directors to deliver, and then they went on and over delivered. No, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So, what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Megan? Uh, Peter, it's not like a great movie, but it's enjoyable. Thumbs up. Alyssa, thumbs up. Go with your mind, wine mom friends. Uh, I got. I have to give it a thumbs down just because I am disappointed. Like it's it's competent. It's not a, a bad movie exactly. It just does not do as much as it could have done with the the premise and the concept. Uh, I look forward to Megan Six 
20 years from now when she's clawing her way out of hell to fight Jason <laughs> from Friday the 13th in space or I mean, something. She's, uh, that's going to be great. She's in your Siri. Like, she's coming back. She's coming back. All right. Uh, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.